Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Story Smack. This is episode 67 of Story Smack a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. My name is A.B. Sigler, audiobook narrator and founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. And my name is Scott Sigler, number one New York Times bestseller. And of course, you knew I was going to say this. There was a firefight! Oh, I love this terrible movie so, so much. I love it. I love it. So we are obviously here to talk about the Boondock Saints. But before we do that, I would like to bring on the Empty Set Movie Maven, Rob Otto. Rob, how are you? Oh, my gosh, my God. Look at that fine Irish lass. I couldn't possibly talk the whole time like this. Couldn't do it. No. <laughs> but they are always after me, Lucky Charms. It's my favorite. <laughs> it's true. Favorite from Austin Powers. What are you, why are they always laughing at that? All right, baby, let's go. Let's hit it. All righty. So um, uh, as I mentioned, this is Story Smack, where we talk about um, things in the world of pop culture. And this week, we're discussing the 1999 movie, The Boondock Saints. As ever, FDO, can you give us the movie man intro? I sure can. Tired of crime overrunning the streets of Boston, Irish Catholic twin brothers Connor and Murphy are inspired by their faith to cleanse their hometown of evil with their own brand of zealous vigilante justice. As they hunt down and kill one notorious gangster after another, they become controversial folk heroes in the community. But Paul Smecker, an eccentric FBI agent, is fast closing in on their blood-soaked trail. There you go. Already, I have to point out, really, really, Paul Smecker got through? Really? What do you mean got through? Paul Smecker? Really? Small pecker? Really? <laughs> Are you kidding oh, me? Oh, holy crap. That is the first time I ever made that connection That is right not there. true. That is not true. <laughs> no, that is 100% true. <laughs> I didn't know it either. I've never heard that before. How is that possible? <laughs> Paul Pecker, no way. Every time anybody wow. says Paul Smecker, I'm like, damn, I can't believe they got that past the MPAA. Wow. That's, uh, that's impressive. Seeing as Rob and I go uh, way back, we're, we're <laughs> high school buddies and we have made a career out of finding ways to turn common words into uh, to naughty words. Mm-hmm. And I never got mm-hmm. Small Pecker before wow. in my life. And And to always make as many... Small penis jokes against the other as humanly possible. How do we well, miss that? Like, well, I feel bad now. I feel bad. I, I don't know. I, uh, just, I, I know you guys go once a year on a boys' trip, most often to Vegas, sometimes yep. other places. Mm-hmm. The next time you're allowed to do that, one, I expect you to do it, and two, I expect you to make a reservation at a restaurant in Mr. Smecker's name, just oh, yes. for me. <laughs> yes, I, I will absolutely do that. But getting back to our small pecker movie, baby, what? <laughs> oh. <laughs> why don't you tell me about the box office of this, oh, my this favorite so, part? Okay, so if you are coming into this um, this show listening blind or watching blind having not seen the movie or don't know much about it I will tell you that this movie I cannot tell you enough how how absolutely terrible it did at the box office and how <laughs> absolutely terrible and there's uh, legs to it there's there's a long tail to it so hang with me uh, Boondock Saints cost seven million dollars to make back in 1999 which was okay. a little more than 11 million dollars had they been doing it today and uh, it <laughs> 
unequivocally <laughs> bombed at the box office, making $411,000 worldwide. <laughs> that's, um, uh, that's not very much. No, in, in today's dollars, it's $650,000, <laughs> oh, <laughs> which is far from $7 million that it costs to make. Um, and I, we're going to talk a whole lot about um, some of the craziness behind this movie, but that is literally the tip of the iceberg. Uh, what are your, you guys, your general Robbie, sort of general thoughts on the movie? Yes, general thoughts on this movie, Robbie. Well, listen, this is a movie, and as A said, there are reasons why the box office was so good, and there's reasons why we're still talking about this, you know, more than 20 years later. Um, Miramax Pictures, Harvey Weinstein, who we all know is a awful human being, he factors into the reason okay. why, mm-hmm. and the, uh, the creator, the writer, the director, Troy Duffy, turns out he's about equal parts idiot- and equal parts <laughs> dick. Um, so he's like an idiot. Uh, and yeah, no, because of go. that, everything went wrong with this production and no one wanted to help this movie out. That's yeah. pretty much the reason why it did so poor. My my top level thoughts, babe, are, uh, and I'm, that's for those of you listening home, that I'm saying a babe, not Rob babe. Although Rob is a babe. He's absolutely a babe. He yes. does flash Especially his Especially on St. Patrick's for... Day after a couple of shots of whiskey. Speaking of which, speaking of, yeah. I'm drinking a little Jameson today. Robbie, what you drinking? Oh, I'm actually also, I'm drinking Jameson, but a mixed drink. Oh, there you I go. I call uh, an old-fashioned Irish breakfast because yeah. it's it's just essentially a whiskey old-fashioned, but I ran out of simple syrup, so I used maple syrup. So it's <laughs> now an Irish How breakfast. Is it? So cheers. It's for the Irish I mean, that actually sounds house. pretty delicious, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> It's actually quite good. <laughs> a little black cherry on top. I, I thought it. you were going to say that you cracked an egg into it like Rocky. That's why it's an Irish breakfast. No. But before we move on with the, the with the uh, the details of the actors and all that other stuff, I do want to come back to this idea that there were a thousand things that made this movie sh- should have been forgettable, including mm-hmm. um, it was rightfully so wildly panned by critics, by mm-hmm. critics small and large, college level critics, expert critics, Times, Roger Ebert, mm-hmm. everybody hated this movie okay. with lots of good reason. And then uh, when it went into video back in the day, it went into video, right? Uh, Blockbuster Video made it an exclusive to Blockbuster bl- release and put it on a shelf in every store they had. And in six months, it made $260 million. Hello. Million <laughs> wait, 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 maybe, no, no, maybe not in six months. It, maybe it's made Eventually. $260 million. But in the in six months, it earned back all of its money and the investment that Blockbuster now, was that, made in it. Is that mm-hmm. money from Blockbuster because of Blockbuster buying copies or that and people saying, now i got to have my own copy of this? No, back in the day, it was, I mean, I worked for Blockbuster when this movie came out and you could buy a new release, mm-hmm. but it was somewhere in the vicinity of $222. Yeah, they were and really I have no idea why they picked that price point, but a brand new release in its first thirty days was two hundred and twenty-two dollars to purchase the videotape, including if you lost it. Yeah, it was insane. Oh my gosh! And um, no and that's why you put your credit card down when there were still Blockbuster stores in case you didn't bring it back or in case you decided to tell me it got damaged. Like I could price it out, but most people they just wanted to keep the movie. And then they had to pay 122 or 222 dollars. We are going to now uh, dive into the cast. Before that, my general overview, my favorite part of this movie, I think it timed it out roughly the first 17 minutes. Yeah, the amount of of small uh, foreshadowings and hints 
that mm-hmm. Duffy, a scriptwriter, puts in that later only makes sense after another two or three things, hap- three things happen and put it together. Mm-hmm. If you just focus on that beginning sequence through the start of Willem Dafoe analyzing the initial crime scene, it's really, really good. For a guy like me who, who writes fiction, where I want to drop a bunch of little things that you don't realize are going to stitch themselves together, like like you know cells coming together to form a larger organism until you see the whole organism go oh okay well all and then it, that it, there is a certain delight sure. to seeing the part self assemble later on and I, for for whatever you say about the rest of this movie that opening segment is just awesome well and there's an argument to be made that the initial um, we'll talk about this a little later in the show but the initial um, overnight success and the the sort of the I won't say bidding war but the intense interest in this script was probably because the first. 20 pages read really well. Yeah, okay. And they did. I mean, I think that makes sense. But uh, we should start to talk maybe about... about Let's go to the cast. Casting career. This is actually not in the cast. This is the man himself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so that's that's Troy Duffy, mm-hmm. who um, essentially was a bartender in Los Angeles. And he had this idea of a story. And some things came together, um, including... Uh, he saw a drug dealer steal money from a dead guy on the street when okay. he was working as a bartender. And that led into the idea of, you know, the, the brothers stealing the money from the Russians, right? In addition to that, the, the opening scene when they're in the church and they're talking about Kitty, Gen- uh, Kitty Genovese, right? And this is a kind of a famous urban legend. Kitty Genovese was a woman who was raped and murdered in New York in the 60s, right? Mm-hmm. And the the Times came out and said, like, 38 neighbors watched it all happen, and none of them did anything. Now, that is a huge over-exaggeration. Okay. Multiple people called the police. Um, multiple people heard it but didn't see it. They just thought it was a drunk couple arguing, that kind of stuff. An old woman actually came down and held Kitty as she died before the ambulance got there. All this kind of stuff. But... Mm-hmm. Those ideas of good people doing nothing while bad stuff was happening is where Troy mm-hmm. Duffy gets the idea for this okay. movie. And it is this is at the time. Think about it. Late 90s. Everybody's looking for the, la- the next Tarantino, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They want that tour. They want to give him a whole bunch of money to do his vision the way Tarantino did. So Troy Duffy started thinking, well, my, my farts don't stink. Everybody wants me, right? And eventually mm-hmm. it came down to a bidding war. Harvey Weinstein works with uh, Miramax. They give him $300,000 for this script. They tell him that he will have total (laughs) control and he can direct it himself. They also buy him the bar that he is working at at the time in order to grab hold of this script. And that's how the the whole thing started. Yep, and that's, he's actually supposed to co-own the bar with Harvey Weinstein, which in 1999, in L.A., there is maybe no bigger chip to show around town than you are. You co-own a thing with Harvey Weinstein. Sure. He's that cool with you. He, he bought a bar for you to share, which was the yeah, idea. And this, this, of course, being before uh, we all understood that Harvey Weinstein was one of the worst human beings <laughs> in the history of man at the time. He was just a huge name he was, in Hollywood. He was the man, yeah. he was the man at the time. And it's an interesting thing because that p- specific story that Rob just told is true. All of that actually went into play. Mm-hmm. And we will find out later, none of it actually came to fruition because nope. of how big of a jerk 
Troy Duffy was. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Clash personalities. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this goes on and on. And we'll talk about this a lot. I'll try to stop saying it. But Troy is so problematic that they start with a $15 million budget. So he's going to get $300,000 just for the script. He's going to get mm-hmm. a 50% ownership in a bar in L.A., which is now the most famous bar in L.A. Mm-hmm. for the moment. And he's going to get a $15 million budget to make his small Okay. Thing. Okay. And he's such a jerk about it. He can't get any like big name stars. We'll talk about this again. Like he literally like trashes Brad Pitt and Matt Damon, who both have interest in the script. Sure, of course, Matt Damon has um, interest in it. Yeah. And and refuses to even meet with them. Wow. And wow. and but but wow. then he actually ends yeah. up getting yeah. he when it comes down to it the the movie gets made with a five million dollar budget and he lands Sean Patrick Flannery to be um, Connor. Okay. Uh, Connor McManus. And uh, I absolutely adore this. At the time that he, that Sean Patrick Flannery joins this cast, he has already been Powder, which makes him a big star, a Mm -hmm. world famous property, even though he doesn't look quite the same. And he has been Young Indiana Jones. And Young Indiana Jones is a thing he does for years. He's the the middle age. He's the 20 20 at the beginning. He's like the 20 year old version of Indiana Jones, not Mm -hmm. the kid. And uh, he does this, I don't know, 20 20 years throughout his career, as long as it takes to get there. But he's already been like a famous on TV, famous in the movies. So he Mm -hmm. actually looks like a pretty big get to me in this movie. And I think he does it because he loves the script and he loves the idea. And he's an Irishman and all that, you know, he's of Irish descent and all that stuff. So um, he also, which I find fascinating i'm not sure it was true at the time but he is um um black belt uh brazilian jiu-jitsu i think and he Mm -hmm. he runs a um brazilian jiu-jitsu jiu-jitsu joint in la to this day because he wanted world-class people to work out with so i find like he took his time and energy and from this and he's still acting every he's a, a yeah a prolific actor what's so strange about this is he's fond of this but he very rarely talks about boondock scenes. Very rarely. Very rarely. <laughs> Only when he's yeah. specifically talking about and boondock his, scenes. Uh, his BJJ black belt is from the Gracie, it's Gracie Academy. Um, and back in 2008, that's mm. that's pretty impressive. That If you guys don't know Heck mixed yeah. martial arts and, and combat, to be a black belt in anything is a serious accomplishment. And a black belt in BJJ from a Gracie-related gym, uh, he's, not, he's not a man to be trifled with. Yeah. And then he confirmed uh, just recently, I think in 2017, that although he has a lot of love for Conor McManus, he will not come back for a Boondock 3. <laughs> is uh, Troy Duffy going to be? Are we going to get to the Boondock Three? Uh, we I don't think we'll ever get a Boondock okay. Three. I don't think but, we'll but, ever. But, get to <laughs> really. but I think part of the help in getting the getting Troy Duffy to maybe come back to reality is is uh, Connor McManus slash uh, Sean Patrick Flannery saying like, nope, I'm absolutely never doing this again. And Wait. McManus, that's McM Anus. I never noticed that before. <laughs> Y'all don't get off the hook for Paul Schmucker. Sorry, you Which just don't. Brings us I, to I the tried. Se- brings us to the second brother, Norman Penis. Peter Reedus. <laughs> Excuse me. Norman Reedus. Listen, this is a serious film, you guys. Oh wait, no, it's not. Go ahead. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Go ahead. It's okay. And of nice course. Try. Norman Reedus has uh, has risen to huge, massive international fame as uh, as Daryl Dixon in The Walking Dead. But before then, he had been in. I didn't remember him in, in Mimic. Gosh darn! I've seen. Well, him he would have been young times. then too. I mean, not too too young. He's just a couple years younger than this. But it's literally one of the very first things he does with. Okay. Elf, okay. Which is amazing. Like, could you imagine like having the career Norman Reedus? Norman Reedus ends up having. Uh-huh. 
with your first movie being a Del Toro movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, not bad. If you're a Troy Duffy, you think, well, of course, this is what I've always deserved. But can you imagine like a young actor just trying to be like, I'm from Florida. I'm trying to do the right thing. I am. Wow. It must okay. have been just such a crappy experience that neither of them want to come back to this well, and, they don't, and they don't talk about it. Yeah. And, and I, as, as A said. Yeah. I actually wonder if part of it is because if you look at their Twitter feeds, especially Norman Reedus, he will share everything that is a legitimate thing that Troy Duffy does. Like, oh, he co wrote some of this, or oh, he helped did this. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I think it might be, and this is totally me um, uh, pontificating, I think it might be that they are trying to get Troy Duffy to come back to reality and be sane because he did have some good ideas. He just got so into his own head and his own ego. So I think they're trying to gently say like, okay, honey, come on. No, nope. Trying to bring it back. <laughs> That's the brothers. And then Rob, we move into one of my, my favorite, probably my favorite, second favorite actor in this movie. Billy Connolly is, uh, is lights out in this thing. Uh, that's Sir Billy oh, Connolly. Thank you very much. <laughs> excuse yeah. me. Yes, Bill Con- Billy Connolly comes in and he plays the biggest heavy, right? The guy that can always Il take Duce. care of whatever problem. Uh, they get him out of jail just to take care of what the hell is going on that none of the mafioso or none of the Russian mob actually know what the hell's going on okay. here. They think it's the two mobs fighting it out and then they realize that's not it at all. But but Billy Connolly, he's this awesome actor, does a lot of comedy stuff, right? He's a he's a comedian. He does stand up. He does, you know, sitcoms, yeah. right? So for Duffy to cast him against type was about the happiest day in Billy Connolly's <laughs> life. I mean, he loved every freaking minute of this to the point where Duffy had to add that cigar when he's in the big shootout scene. There was a fire, fire. Go back. When he's, <laughs> when he's in that scene, uh-huh. Duffy had to put a cigar in Billy Connolly's mouth because he could not stop smiling. Yeah. <laughs> he was smiling because he was having so much fun and playing a guy that's against everything he's ever done. He was like giddy about it and they needed him to be menacing. And yeah. so they had to shove the cigar that's in his incredible. mouth just to get him to stop smiling. I mean, um, that's fantastic. And Rob, just so you know, uh, Scott has put up a picture of Billy Connolly as uh, El Duce uh. with the cigar in his mouth and the two pistols and the others in the holsters. Mm-hmm. Smile in his fool head. Still smiling. I mean, you still smiling. Smile in his fool head. You know what? If you're going to kill people, why not enjoy your work? I mean, if you're El Duce, enjoy your work. Enjoy yeah. your work. Listen, if you love what you do, you never uh, <laughs> you work never a day in your life, right? So. And the cool thing about Billy Donnelly is he's, I think, Scott, he would be like you would be if you were on a set. Like in between takes, uh-huh. you would be doing, you know, a baby McMuffin interviewing people. That, that's what you would be doing. <laughs> I do love that you call him baby McMuffin. I called him baby McMuffin. You know what I meant. I know. Yes, I like it. Butter. That's I, it. I right. like it. Too. He was a set entertainer, right? Yes, exactly right. He just basically, in between takes, would just roll out comedy bits. And he would have everybody cast through any random person walking by laughing so much that at some points, Duffy would have to say, hey, Billy, we have to go to work now. Okay, (laughs) We we have to make the scene now. And that was... That was the coolest part because that's just who Billy Connolly is. Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, he's gone on to just do, uh, he's done so many things, Lord of the Rings, animation, oh God, yeah. uh, just, just great. Uh, that's but this from, is uh, his first, this is his first serious role. This okay. really opened the door to a lot of that other serious stuff. Cause up to this point, nobody knew he could pull it off. How interesting. We have two guys in the movie who don't even talk about it anymore. And one who probably can't talk about it enough. Yeah. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> Which brings us to, uh, the incredible Willem Dafoe in this movie. Wow. Uh, and and Willem, so many people were considered for this part. Patrick Swayze, Robert De Niro, Sir Kenneth Branagh, Kevin Spacey passed in the role. Uh, Miramax wanted Sylvester Stallone, Bill Murray, who would have been great, or Mike Myers. I'm not sure how well that would have worked out. But they all three of those, Defoe, yeah, 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 all three of those that that uh, Miramax wanted uh-huh. when Miramax was still involved, they all ha- they had relationships with all three of those actors already. I see. So mm-hmm. it would have been like, oh, we understand the parameters here or whatever. But so, but the uh, the first three you mentioned were interested in the part. Okay. And uh, again, we'll talk a little bit about Troy Duffy's. Um, uh, Disinterest in uh, somebody who was not as famous or talented as he was at the time. Oh boy! So that's maybe why he turned down. I don't know, Robert De Niro. Yeah, Robert De Niro would have been a would have been a good choice. Uh, Defoe took this role after two decades of constant work, in part because, in his own words, he likes to take challenges. His performance as Paul Schmecker, not Schmall Pecker, <laughs> has been called everything from uneven and eccentric to perfectly eccentric, and uh, he's another just absolute legend of Hollywood. Absolutely, so and and so of course. Since then, he's he's uh, in this in this um, movie. He is the only one who's a multiple Oscar, well, an Oscar winner or a multiple Oscar winner. Mm-hmm. He's won BAFTAs. He's won Golden Globes. He's won all sorts of movie roles and TV shows and all of that. And he uh, is in every role, sort of a chameleon and mercurial. And I think that's part of what was so wonderful about this. There's also a rumor that he didn't get a ton of direction, so he's like. All right. I mean, I'm happy to do what you want, but let me know when I cross the line. And apparently, there was no line. No line. Now uh, we are coming to our last cast member. We're going to talk about, and I got to be honest, Rob, I'm not happy with you, Uh, David. uh, David Delaroca got Uh to be in this movie for a specific reason, and I'm waiting for you to make a friggin' movie so I can be in it. (laughs) What the hell, man? So, and I will name the character. Scott Carl Sigler. (laughs) (laughs) So David Delaroca is a childhood friend of Troy Duffy's, and some a lot of his character is is uh, written on um, is written on based on David Delaroca. So his character Mm -hmm. name is also David Delaroca. And um, sorry about that. Go ahead. And uh, he has he was in Boondock Saints two, and he's had a couple of other credits, Mm -hmm. and he's done some comedy since then. But pretty much like. This is a defining. This is the defining role. Again, I we'll talk a lot about like critics didn't have a lot of nice Boys. things to say about David Delaroca's role. Mm-hmm. I find that totally a reasonable criticism. But also, if you're playing yourself or the person your lifelong friend thinks you're going to be, I'm sure that you just you just sort of fall into that. We see that a lot in Judd Apatow movies where people have worked together for years and years and years and they just get into the camaraderie of doing their thing. Okay. Okay. And I think that David Della Roca felt very comfortable. And to be fair... He did a good job. He did. Yeah, I mean, he's not a terrific actor, but he's a terrific actor in this movie playing himself, as a, like a batshit crazy version of himself. Mm-hmm. But also, I'm pretty sure the human David Della Roca has never had to deal with shooting a cat. And so... Spoiler That's alert. a big assumption. <laughs> I'm just saying. So, like that—that that is a thing that people 
you know, actors trained to do. So I appreciate the role that he had, the, the job that he did with the role that he had, considering acting not necessarily his gig. He did study acting for a while, so maybe he ended up not being, just being not a great actor. But I feel like... The, it's a little harsh to dog him for this role because he's literally like a sure, Troy, whatever, I'll do it. Well, this is, you, <laughs> you know, know? His, when he comes on the scene in the movie, uh, we're we're largely mostly past that first seventeen minute segment, except mm-hmm. for his role in the bar. And again, the first 17, 20 minutes, super tight. And then the scenes with him, most of the talking scenes with long held shots, those are where it gets janky. I think the action was pretty good, but it's, yeah. it's the the interaction between the characters where things are just kind of nothing really clicks for me in that movie in those parts. Yeah. And yet I still love it. Yeah, <laughs> like I can out. call out all the no things about that are it. terrible about it and really terrible performances, really terrible, uh, C- not CGI, but um, effects, that sort of thing. Yeah. But it still works for me. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. It's it's a movie made by extremely flawed people mm-hmm. about extremely flawed people that is extremely flawed and yet <laughs> so freaking entertaining. So right? entertaining. So yeah. entertaining. Yeah, it's it's really good. So um, we should probably get into what we've yeah, been that. toying yes. around with this yeah. idea that this was such a crazy time uh, for this film to get made. Um, Rob, we mentioned that there's all sorts of, well, myth backstory, all the stuff we've been talking about, um, about Troy Duffy do you want to, and yeah. Weinstein. Do you want to get into some of that? Yeah, so, I mean, you think at the time, um, and completely unheralded, unproven auteur like Tro- Troy Duffy gets mm-hmm. the dream contract and partnership with Harvey Weinstein, right? I mean, that's fantastic. One of the biggest names in the business. And the problem is, is that Duffy kind of puts him off so early in their relationship that Weinstein just says, ah, I'm done. 
He never actually <laughs> says it. And Duffy always accused him of it and accused him of submarining it and okay. trying to blackball him and screw up the movie, like from the get-go. Um, and at the time, everybody was like, Harvey wouldn't do that. Harvey's all about the money. He's this a, good is a good guy. Movie. <laughs> yeah, right. What a heck of a guy. And then we find out as the years uh, go yeah, on yeah, that, yeah. yes, he is a he is a trash of a human being. He is awful. And everything he's done with the young women that he worked with and everything, all of a sudden, I look back now and say, yeah, I bet Harvey Weinstein did exactly what Troy Duffy said okay. he did. I okay. bet he submarined this movie. Um, he downsold it at Cannes when it was first released. And that just really, you know, he, he's, he's been known to threaten filmmakers and all this kind of stuff. So okay. it seems like it, now, looking back, it would not be out of character at all for Weinstein. Um, to just blacklist it, make sure it got screwed up. And if you look, there's this great documentary called Overnight that's about this. It's about the overnight success sure. of Troy Duffy. And you see some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, and you see some of the conversations and the phone calls. And it's just like, yeah, I think Troy Duffy on this one, he's for the one time in the production of this movie, he's in the right. Yeah, and I think oh, Weinstein sure. did everything Duffy said he did. And like you mentioned, overnight, if you guys are at all a fan of this movie – absolutely find that documentary and watch it it is it makes mm -hmm. the movie so much better when you realize that they actually got it out and you actually got to watch it it's it's mesmerizing but yeah he actually is like in that movie you hear him completely unable to talk to harvey weinstein in a professional to professional way because he's so convinced that Weinstein is manipulating him. And, of course, now we know Weinstein was so invested in manipulating every single mm -hmm. piece of his career. Okay. That is probably mm -hmm. is true. And uh, in, in, so we have, obviously, Weinstein's proven to be a very difficult uh, right. sort of individual. But Duffy, even though he may have been right about his experience, also a rather difficult individual. <laughs> yes. Rob, I mean, tell us about the casting process for, uh, oh, for yes. this movie. Yeah, if this is going to be... Um, Duffy's new job, he's terrible at it. Uh, he, he's, he's really bad at putting casts together and making people. He, he misunderstands the fragile egos of people in Hollywood mm -hmm. and does not pussyfoot around them at all. He clashed with the producers. He clashed with Miramax. He clashed with everybody. Um, some actors that would have been great in these roles, Duffy wouldn't even meet with. I mean, Brad Pitt... Um, Keanu Reeves, he yeah. called Keanu Reeves a punk. And <laughs> after seeing Keanu Reeves with a pistol in his hand, I think that was a poor choice. Um, <laughs> he calls Ethan Hawke, who's one of the biggest names in Hollywood at the time, a uh -huh. talentless fool. Wow. So, so he, I want to compare Duffy to Tarantino, right? Because okay. those okay. are the two big auteurs of the nineties that we're talking yeah. about. And clearly there's careers. a Tarantino influence oh, uh, on hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. No doubt about it. Yeah. No doubt about it. Tarantino valued and appreciated everything that came before him. And he paid homage to and worked with the biggest names from when he loved movies. And he made sure to bow down to them and let them know how much he loved their work. Duffy, on the other hand, does exactly the opposite. He thinks he's the big man and everyone should be bowing down to okay, him. Okay. And that's why you look at Tarantino's IMDb page and there's a thousand things on there. And you look at Troy Duffy and there's 12. Yeah, that's yeah. that's why. Yeah. And to all use, 12 uh, come back to Boondock to, Saints pretty to much. To <laughs> use a, a uh, curse word, if I may, mm -hmm. the old phrase, at least uh, my dad taught me and other people touch him, you don't shit where you sleep. Mm -hmm. And when you are, you know, taking a regular dump on other people, especially in a highly connected 
industry, like the movie industry, yep. where you know cameras are on you and you're still saying these awful things about people that somewhere down the road, not only might you work with, but somewhere down the road, you being able to work with that person might be the thing that gets that product project made. For sure. And he's just, you know, you're you, you're cutting off your nose for your face. You don't see the long tail of what your career is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And to Rob's point, the the him calling um, Ethan Hawke a talentless fool and calling Brad, uh, Keanu Reeves a punk, those are in overnight you can hear yeah, him yeah. say it it's not a rumor he says mm-hmm. it. it's insane and, and and he's never met them it's not oh, like really? he had a meeting with them and was like nah that guy is not right for though he's a little bit of a punk he's just talking off the top of his head and i'm sure to this day he has never met either one of those punks or talentless fools however he did meet ewan mcgregor Rob. Oh, this is such a great story <laughs> this is unbelievable to me and honestly i wish they had cameras on this i would have loved to see this so apparently he flies to new york wants mm-hmm. to meet ewan mcgregor thinks he's going to be perfect for the role which of course he would have been no doubt about it but um duffy starts drinking and when he starts <laughs> drinking he starts arguing and they get in this long drawn out verbal assault about the death penalty to the point where Ewan McGregor just basically says, screw you. I would never do a movie with you and walks out the door. That's what we're talking about, right? And so with Weinstein hitting it from one end and Duffy screwing things up from the other end, Miramax pulls out. They Mm -hmm. said, we're done. We're we're not going to distribute this movie. We're we're not going to pay for the rest of it. Good luck. And so this, this little... Um, franchise pictures, which is just a little, you know, a little shop says, okay, we will distribute it, but we have to own the rights after we put it in theaters. Okay. And Duffy at this point is desperate. He's like, well, if we get the movie out there, it's going to explode and everybody's going to love it. And so it won't matter. I'm not worried about the distribution Uh, after it's in theaters. Cause the, the movie, the money from the theaters is going to be all I ever need and I'll be set for life. And that was not the case. That was not the case. It, it's an interesting time, though, because um, we keep talking about this uh, this documentary overnight. One of the things that's important to note about overnight is the people that t- – so Duffy gets um, lead money when he signs with Miramax. And like Rob said, they put the movie into turnaround after about three months. Turnaround is saying like, hey, you guys, we're not going to ask you to pay us back for this, but we're done. Anybody want Mm -hmm. this? You can have this. Somebody else can buy it from us. We're not putting another dollar into this. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, so they put it into turnaround. Eventually somebody picks it up. But it goes from Duffy getting half ownership in a bar with Harvey Weinstein and Mm $300,000 and a $15 million budget and A-list stars to a $5 million budget and a contract that egotistical Duffy doesn't even realize in the world of blockbuster video in 1999, that's mm-hmm. a huge thing. And he doesn't even realize that he's not negotiating those rights. That's how egotistical and sure yeah. he is that it won't matter. And of course, that's not what happened. So Tony Montana and Mark Brian Smith are the people who created Overnight. And at the time, they were hired because they were the band managers for Troy Duffy's band, which we haven't <laughs> mentioned until now. Did but Troy when- Duffy hire them to make Overnight? Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. And I know. It's it. great. <laughs> and um, and excuse me, and they um, they go into this thinking like awesome because this is a crazy and they, at the time I can't remember what it was called, but it wasn't called overnight. Okay, and uh, they go with like this is insane. He gets um, he he gets to um, be the the um, composer for the movie. His okay. band, which at the time was called I think the 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 
Brood. The Brood. Brood. Thank you. It's called The Brood. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's already a a famous band with albums out in 1999 in somewhere else in the world called The Brood. And so whoever controls this, I'm assuming also Miramax, is like, cool, you can't be The Brood. And and he's like, fuck that. We're going to be The Brood anyway. And he's like, cool, we're not going to do it. They re they renamed the band the Boondock Saints, which I guess they were until 2007 when they sort of broke up. Okay, Duffy's brother is in the band. All right, and as part of this deal, he gets to um, <clears throat> compose the the any of the music in the in the show. The Boondock Saints get to be the band in the show, mm-hmm. and his brother is in the band, and they get paid for that, like industry scale and Duffy keeps it for himself it's his own brother and the two people who are making the documentary about Troy Duffy he refuses to pay any money to Ah, well, and that brings up Troy Duffy saying he thought the treatment in the movie, his treatment in the movie was extremely unfair. He says, uh, did I think it was fair? He says, absolutely not. I don't have to feel, I know I was there. It was happening to me. That kind of behavior you saw in the film was the exception and not the rule. And I don't think it was too fair of them to not provide any context of why Troy's upset, who's talked to, et cetera. You know what? You don't you don't shit where you sleep, and you don't you don't not pay the people making well, a documentary about you. It's never going to go well. And Tony Montana and Mark Brian Smith have had many interviews about this, and said like, "Trust us, this wasn't an inside job. We mm-hmm. literally made him the out to be the best <laughs> version of himself." Yep. And they say this with proof. We didn't add all the anti-Semitism. Oh my god! We gosh. didn't add all the homophobia. Oh, we no. didn't add all the racism. We didn't add all that, but we have Please. all that. And all of a sudden, Troy Duffy is no longer saying that it was a con job. (laughs) And and the best part of the whole documentary is, you know, Boondock Saints is completely panned. I mean, it's it's got a low number on Rotten Tomatoes. All the critics hated it, right? Mm -hmm. Overnight is a huge media darling, right? The (laughs) critics love it. The fans love it. It has a huge rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Everybody loves this documentary. Except, of course, Troy Duffy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, the crazy thing about this, and I don't know a lot of these details, but the crazy, so this movie comes out in, uh, The Boondock Saints comes out in 1999, after mm-hmm. 10 years in development of all this business and drama okay. of um, <clears throat> Miramax coming in and going out and all that stuff. Yeah, that's when it was first at Cannes yeah. to try to get sold. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then uh, in 2004, Overnight comes out. And then I think it's in 2007 or nine or something. Duffy, Duffy gets Boondock 2 made. Mm-hmm. I find that amazing. Yeah. <laughs> How many times do you have to be shown that uh, this won't work? <laughs> it's a that's that's I often I often compare working in Hollywood, which we haven't done yet, but we study it enough, um, or writing a book a lot to being a a head coach in the NFL or a coach in the NFL. <clears throat> once you have attained that level, even if your team goes 0 and 16, 1 and 15, once you've been a head coach in the NFL, you always have work. There's always somebody who will hire you at some level of football, probably pro football, because you have experience that is untouchable anywhere else. And that's why so many people, aspiring filmmakers, set out to make that they they burn credit cards or do everything they can to get that mm-hmm. indie made. Joseph Kahn is one of those who went um, mil, a mil, over a million in debt just to make his first movie. Because once you've made a movie and show people you can do the whole process, you are a far even if you're an asshole, you're much less of a risk when it comes yes. to people. Here's five million dollars. You want to give that $5 million to somebody who's already shown they can make a product and generate a profit or at least revenue. That's how, you know, so yeah, Yeah, I'm surprised he hasn't made more to tell you the truth. Well, and I think that has a lot to do with his inability to get over his own ego. 
<clears throat> I think that people, I mean, it's proof in the pudding that that Willem Dafoe makes an uncredited cameo in Boondock 2. Sean Patrick Flannery and Norman Reedus are back as the McManus brothers. Okay. And I think that that stands to the idea that if he could get out of his, I mean, I, honestly, and I don't, I'm not putting anything on him or anything, but honestly, I think there are people who care about him and think he could be talented if he could solve this mania of his ego or whatever. So I think, I think he could work more if he was a little less a little into less himself. Into too, there too. was also unfortunate timing that very, helped, very much. you know, sink mm, this movie, for sure. right? So it premieres at Cannes one month after the Columbine shootings okay. in 1999, right? So two white kids walking around in black clothing mm-hmm. with weapons shooting people. All of a sudden, the distributors all backed off. They're okay. like, I am not attaching my name, my company's reputation to this movie. It's too violent. It's too soon. We can't do it. And that's why there was really only one production company that was willing to distribute it and only willing to distribute it for a very small window. And that was just a huge part of it. I mean, mm-hmm. timing that and matters. Hollywood's everything, right? That, that absolutely matters. This is a great point. Uh, the, I love this. The amount <laughs> – talking about what a – Difficult person Sean Duffy is. The amount of violence in the script made it almost Troy impo- Duffy. Troy Duffy, excuse me, made it almost impossible for the filmmakers to find a church that would allow them to shoot in the premises. <laughs> the church where the brothers attend mass in the opening scene is Boston's Union United Methodist Church. Duffy also allegedly received a letter from the Archdiocese of Toronto that detailed the church's hatred of the film and called Duffy the spawn of Satan. Now, here's the <laughs> you problem. the church calling you the spawn of Satan. That's impressive. And isn't yeah, that Catholic the church. best marketing you could them. possibly have if you're going to write a movie like The Boondock Saints? And instead of leaning in, uh-huh. he's offended. Oh, yeah, yeah. I- <laughs> I would roll with that all day. That would be the... The Archdiocese of Toronto calls you the spawn of Satan for making the Boondock Saints, and that doesn't show up in your media? What? Yeah, you would put that quote on the back of one of your books, wouldn't you, Scott? (laughs) I'd replace the title of my book with that. That would be the title of the book. Yeah. It wouldn't be Scott Sigler, New York Times bestseller. It would be Scott Sigler, who the Archdiocese of Toronto called the spawn of Satan. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We do have to talk about, there is one (laughs) other actor in this movie that I want to mention. He's got a very small role. Make all the jokes you want once I tell you that that person I'm talking about is Ron He Jeremy. is not Paul Smecker. No, he is not Paul Smecker. He does have this a This is very... why I hang out with Rob, you guys. That was well done. Uh, yeah. I'm getting you. You guys ready? I'm set. Here's one more softball. Go. Go ahead. He does have a very small part. But I wanted to point out another, since we're especially since we're talking about Overnight and how uh, for me, anyway, it's so much more interesting to watch the Boondock Saints if I've watched overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There is a documentary called Porn Star, the, Regi- the Legend of Ron Jeremy. And, of course, the hedgehog is having the same sort of trouble that Harvey Weinstein is having yes, now. Yes, he is. Yep. That said, uh, so I'm not, I, I'm not necessarily officially recommending Porn Star as a view, but I will say when you watch it. So he, uh, Ron Jeremy in the Boondock Saints is absolutely straight acting there is nothing about him even when he goes to the sex to the peep show Mm -hmm. there is nothing about him that is capitalizing on the fact that he's a porn star he is showing up to do his i thought he did a good job and if in the i years ago saw a porn star the legend of ron jeremy i think it came out in 2000 or 2001 a while back okay and it's fascinating because he's this good, nebbishy Jewish kid in, in this in this iteration back then who just wants to make it in the movies. And 
literally sees himself doing porn until he becomes mm-hmm. a movie star. And this makes was his big break. He so do, when but he, he has got, crossed over a bunch of times. And every chance that somebody wants to take him seriously, he does it. And you actually see in that in that documentary about him, you see him packing his luggage to go for a shoot and a part that he really and, and I don't think it's this movie. But he's also like this I guess his parents were depression era and he his luggage is I kid you not trash bags <laughs> because he's so like he's so early, like I just want to go do the work and this is every single thing like the Boondock Saints tiny role that he had there he treats as if it's going to make him a legitimate star That's and great. I find that kind of uh, bittersweet and sad but and- and Troy Duffy makes an appearance in Oops. Ron Jeremy's porn Spirit star power. documentary. He talks about Ron Jeremy, the actor, in that documentary. So yeah. it's it's interesting. So I want to I want to touch upon guys. So we talked about the blockbuster thing and how this movie made hundreds of millions of dollars and how Duffy essentially didn't get any of it. And so how did a sequel get made? It's because Duffy sued franchise pictures. Okay. Right. Wow. Basically, basically said, yeah, I know I signed that contract, but apparently I was an idiot um, and I should get some of the money from Blockbuster. And when it came down to it, franchise, as off happens with bigger companies, just said, fine, give him some money. Let's mm-hmm. settle. Let's get out of this. And so he ended up making money from the Blockbuster deal that made this such a, you know, a, a a uh, uh, blockbuster, if you excuse the pun, uh-huh. box office, right? The hundreds of millions of dollars. He got his slice of that pie and then turned around, used a bunch of that money to help greenlight Boondock Saints 2, All Saints Day. And mm-hmm. that's really how the second movie got made. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we, do we know, uh, has he done other movies besides these two? He has uh, done a few little writing parts and there's one other movie. I forget what it's called, but it's not. This this is his entire career. His entire yeah, career is proving that he's done some episodic was, TV. Yeah, uh, he's done a few things that no one's ever heard of, and I mean, yeah. that's... And most that's of his career is uh, is trying to prove that he was railroaded and is the star he believes him to be himself to be. Is he um, still at the bar? Does anybody know he's still? No, the he bar? never got the bar because he, he, the he bar. because he burned that relationship with Miramax, so they never finished the deal. Okay, so and director, of course, Harry uh, Harvey Weinstein didn't want to own a dive bar in L.A. He was attached to a TV series <laughs> called Luminous, which I don't know if that got made, but that was back in 2015. So his IMDb credits as a director, The Boondock Saints, The Boondock Saints too. That's all we've got. <laughs> yeah, that's all we've got. That's pretty uh, much it. Yeah, and uh, you know the shame of it is he has he 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 had the chops to make a script that absolutely had a ton of interest, and so theoretically, even though he wants to be essentially, he wants to be. Clooney, I guess. He wants to act when he wants to act. He wants to direct when he wants to direct. He wants to produce when he wants to produce. Mm-hmm. What he is, if he's anything, is a writer. And if if he could get out of his head and write, I bet he could do just fine and have a career. But he wants to be the big kahuna. And Listen, I don't think that's going to happen. This script is, is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's Very great. I mean, the way that they first show the end of the scene. Right. And then they have FBI agent Paul Smecker describe what he thinks happened. And he's really good at this. And Mm -hmm. he is dead on with some of the stuff. And then they flash back and show what happens. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is directly to the detail that Paul Smecker said it was going to be. I mean, that's that's clever. I've never really seen it done that way before. It's clever. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. And I do. um, I think that it's. I, th- there is some magic that exists, like in Trolls Two, for example, like the other movies that, for for all the right reasons, failed as a movie making endeavor. Mm-hmm. 
and then for all the right reasons succeeded with the uh, at home audience that had because I think that those are different experiences. And and back in 99 and early 2000s, that's when we're starting to see the difference between going to watch a movie in the cinema with your friends versus the experience you can have at home. And those movie tastes start to change like, well, I'll see that one on the big screen, but I'll see these others. And I think that that's part of the reason that Boondock Saints succeeds is because it's a movie you can watch on your TV at home and love. Yeah, and a bit, a bit of a, um, you know, you, you don't want other people to know that's the type of movie you rented. Right? <laughs> I mean, you know, the kind that used to be behind the little curtain and the little door yeah. that you know often had Ron Jeremy in yeah. them. That was one kind, but also the ones that, like, you know, you want people to think you're watching Citizen Kane. You know, yeah. you want people to think that you're watching these epics like Ben Hur, and instead, you know, you're renting Weekend at Bernie's too. So Which, I, yes. It's, it's a guilty pleasure kind of movie, and that's why I think it found such a great audience. It Absolutely, did. it yeah. did, and it's uh, it's it's a pretty good movie. I mean, overall, it's fun to watch. We rewatched it for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's fun. It's, yeah. it's got plenty of flaws, like most movies do, but it's super. It's a very very fun movie. And Willem Dafoe, if you were if you just add him in it, it would be outstanding. And then you've got all the other stuff on top of it. I will mention, in case you guys are listening, I'll put this in the show notes as well for the podcast when it happens. But if you are uh, hearing this, I put in the chat room a link to an article to a review of the Boondock Saints from back in the day (laughs) that I love for all the same reasons that I love this movie. Mm -hmm. This guy pulls no punches. He literally says his opening line is, what's so incredible about the Boondock Saints is how David Della Roca's atrocious performance distracts from many other terrible things going on in the movie. Like, what? It's not nice. It's not nice at all. Uh, Nelson in the chat room has pointed out that overnight you can see it on Pluto TV for free, and I'm sure you can find it. Yeah, places I think it's well. on nice. maybe. So there's one. Yeah, you can see it in a handful of places. Before so we close there. out this show, uh, the most important stats, of course, to me are the swear. This is why I was waiting for you to hit these last two, Scotty. <laughs> the uh, the most important part about this movie, the word fuck and its derivatives are used a total of 246 times. That's a good number. I've, I've kept tabs in a lot of movies with a lot of curse words, and that's a solid, solid number. And the body David count... David Rocco, I believe, does seven of those in one sentence. That's and that, pretty you know, impressive. One of my best friends, Allison, Allison, uh, and it's in one of your books. It's in one of my books. Uh, Allison and I used to run a business together when Scott and I started to work together, and she was mad about something on the phone, and we were in San Diego. He was still living in San Francisco, in the office in San Diego, and she's on the phone mad about something, and she hangs up. Because she's ever the professional. And she goes, you know, fuck that guy and his fucking fucker. <laughs> <laughs> and we're both and are like, what? It's in again, as again, Connor, again, again, again. <laughs> as Connor McManus says to David right after that sentence, mm-hmm. shows the diversity of the word. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the body count in this movie, 33, which I felt it was higher, but 33 is pretty it's good surprisingly low, isn't it? 34, if you count the cat. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. If you, and I did accidentally, as I was calling up graphics for the live stream, did have a picture of a cat on a stove burning <laughs> come across the screen. So it could be very well be that cat. Now, uh, but as we go into the closing, we were going to do uh, Coming to America 2 for the next movie. But I have to point out here, I think I can do it like a little bit like this. I yeah, what threw, did the fans come in on I that I threw phone, a quick Scotty. poll out oh, to yeah, Sigler Junkies, smart. which is a private fa- a private group over on Facebook. If you are a fan of mine and you've not gone to facebook.com slash group slash Sigler Junkies, one word, and you have to apply to get in. They don't just take anybody, but I rattled out to the crowd there, and it's, let's get an update on the stats real quick, and it was a clear win. People want to see, whoop, query error. Oh, added one more. We have got 61 <laughs> votes for Coming to America, 
and four votes for coming to America too. It is decided. Yeah. It is decided. So the 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 uh, the fans. My guess are is we'll do both, uh, not together, but at some point we'll also later this year probably review coming to America too. All right, coming Maybe. to America. <laughs> Rob, coming do you have any to America? Rob, do you have any last closing thoughts on this movie? Listen, go in understanding that it's a very flawed movie and that Willem Dafoe is completely over the top completely. and just embrace it, love it, uh, hold it close to you late at night uh, <laughs> and, and and just understand that's what the movie is and you will have a hell of a good time, especially around St. Patrick's Day. Yes, okay. yes. Baby, any last thoughts? Oh, yeah, that's one other thing I don't think I said on the cast, but when we were setting up, um, the, I think it's this article maybe that I posted and I just mentioned, <laughs> I read sometime in the prepping for this show, um, he mentions, I, I can't believe you open the movie with a scene on St. Patrick's Day in Boston in Southie, and there's no St. Patrick's Day parade <laughs> at all. None. <laughs> I mean, you can buy that footage. Probably free. Probably somebody <laughs> give it to him for free. None of that. It's just a scene in a bar, which is great, um, with lots of nice little notes. Uh, Doc, who owns the bar, has Tourette's, and everybody knows it except for the, the newcomers, and they don't. They sass him, but it's all good. And one little streamer, one little green streamer. Doesn't even say Patty's Day. It's, it's insane. That's my final thought. My final thoughts on this movie is, if you've never seen it, it is definitely wonderful after 10 o'clock p.m. on a weeknight or weekend. You know, you've had a couple of drinks or whatever. A <laughs> couple shots of whiskey? Hell couple yeah. Of shots of whiskey. Actually, I have a couple of shots of whiskey while you watch the film. If you like shoot 'em ups if you like explosions, if you like dudes having war with criminals, you can't go wrong with this. It's fabulous. And the Green Goblin is in it, so it's everything I could want. <laughs> Fair everything enough. I could want in a Fair movie. Fair enough. All right, baby, Thank you out. so much, Rob, for joining us. We will see you when we do Coming to America in a couple of weeks. Yep. Sounds good. Sounds great. I'll, uh, I'll, 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 you know, let you know if there's a spoon with my soup. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Rob. See you. Good day, sir. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Uh, Okay. I believe that we're done, right? Uh, Yes, ma'am. We are done. Take us out. So that was episode 67 of Story Smack. Uh, You can find Scott and I online. Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter and Instagram. And his Facebook page is facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. I am at A Real Girl on Twitter and at a.real.girl on Instagram. You can find us online at facebook.com slash storysmack. We live stream storysmack every other Saturday at facebook.com slash scottsigler, twitch.tv slash scottsigler, and youtube.com slash scottsigler, where you can not only hear our voices, you can see all of our pretty faces as we jibber-jab about movies. And had you been watching instead of listening to this, you would see the glorious you hat. you see my tiny hat? Wearing. I yeah. have a very tiny hat that... Very tiny. My tiny hat has mystified the audience as to how this tiny hat is <laughs> staying on my head. And I've explained to people in the chat room, it is the gravitational pull of my oversized melon. I see. Yes. Uh, in addition to Story Smack, we do a once-weekly live stream called Sigler in Place. It's on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. all through until everything, the pandemic's over and we're done with lockdown. Uh, at uh, Right here, wherever you're watching this. And I put out a section of a unabridged full-length audiobook every Sunday over at scottsigler.com. You can subscribe to that at scottsigler.com slash subscribe. We got links to Spotify, iHeartRadio, and all the stuff. And we hope you can join us to hear Scott's books and more Story Smacks goodness in the future. And I think that's it for us. Until the next episode, we will talk to you all real soon.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.